Now, today, as we begin in the book of Leviticus, I want to turn back to this book. And before we get into the text, I'd like to put down an introduction to Leviticus because I consider it now one of the most important books in the Bible. Many years ago, I read where Dr. Kellogg made the statement that he considered the book of Leviticus the most important book in the Bible. And I felt like he must have tongue-in-cheek to make a statement like that. And then I heard a great preacher in Memphis, Tennessee, years ago, Dr. Dudley, say he considered the book of Leviticus the greatest book in the Bible. And then on our radio program several years ago, I made an experiment. I began teaching this book. I wanted to study it, and I wanted to see if these men were accurate. And I must confess that I had misgivings as to the value of Leviticus for a popular exposition on the Bible. And may I say that I discovered that it was a thrilling book, and not only that, that I now could say honestly that I consider the book of Leviticus, one of the most important books of the Bible. And if it were possible for me to get the message of this book into the hearts of everyone in Southern California that is just even religious, I could end all the cults and isms that are here. For this book will certainly do just that. Now, the book of Leviticus was written by Moses. It's part of the Pentateuch. It's Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. And in Leviticus, we just don't go anywhere. We're just marking time at Mount Sinai. The book opens and concludes at this same geographical spot, Mount Sinai. And God was giving the law there. And we saw at the end of the book of Exodus that God gave the instruction for the building of a tabernacle. And then it was constructed, and the glory of the Lord filled it. Now, Leviticus gives the order and rules of worship in the tabernacle. It's the great book on worship. And the Hebrew word, Vayikra, opens the book. And it means, and he called. God moves into the tabernacle now, and he no longer speaks from Mount Sinai. He calls the people to him here at the tabernacle, and he tells them how they're to come, how they're to walk before him. And this, I think, is a wonderful message for the church, because the church, actually, the name is ekklesia in the Greek, and that means called out ones, those that have been called out. And God called to the people out of the tabernacle and asked them to come to him. And the Lord Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. This book will have a wonderful message for us today. Now, the purpose of this book is it reveals worship. It's the book of worship. And in this book, we have sacrifice, ceremony, ritual, liturgy, instructions, washings, convocations, holy days, observances, conditions, and warnings crowd this book. 
and all of these physical exercises were given to teach great spiritual truths. You remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, "...now all these things happened unto them for ensamples. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age has come." And then he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, "...these things are our examples." And then in Romans 15, 4, we read, "...for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope." And Peter in his first epistle in the first chapter, verse 11, says, "...searching what are what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven thirteen, "...these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth." Now, this book of Leviticus will have some wonderful instruction for us today. And this book of Leviticus reveals Christ in a most remarkable manner. Now, we've just had the gospel of Mark. And I must confess to you that there we had an abridged edition of the Lord Jesus. Not very much, but in the book of Leviticus, a great deal more is said about him. Tyndall, years ago in his prologue, on this book of Leviticus, made this statement, and I'd like to read this to you because I consider this very important. He says, quote, "...those sacrifices and ceremonies can be no ground or foundation to build upon, that is, though we can prove naught with them, yet when we have once found out Christ and his mysteries, then we may borrow figures." that is to say, allegories, similitudes, and examples to open Christ and the secrets of God hid in Christ, even under the quick, and can declare them more lively and sensibly with them than with all the words of the world. That's a great statement, by the way. And you remember the Lord Jesus said to the woman at the well, they had been going through ceremonies, they had had rituals, now he says, "'Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And that is John four twenty-one to 24. Now, the message in the book of Leviticus is actually twofold. Leviticus teaches that the way to God is by sacrifice, and the word atonement occurs 45 times. Now, atonement means to cover up. 
the blood of bulls and goats did not actually take away sin. It covered over until Christ came who took away our sins. And that's what Paul meant in Romans 3.25 when he says, "...whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation," that is, a mercy seat, "...through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past." through the forbearance of God. Now, the sins that are past were the sins back in the Old Testament. You see, God never accepted the blood of bulls and goats, but he required it to be shed. It was an atonement to cover over until Christ came. In other words, God saved on credit in the Old Testament. And when Christ came, the hymn is accurate. Jesus paid it all. As far as the past is concerned... As far as the present is concerned, as far as the future is concerned. And so one of the key verses in Leviticus is Leviticus 17:11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it's the blood that maketh an atonement for your soul. And then there's another great lesson here. It not only teaches that the way to God is by sacrifice and that without shedding of blood there's no remission of sins, but it teaches not only the way, but teaches that the walk with God is by sanctification. And the word holiness occurs 87 times in this book. And ye shall be holy unto me, for I the Lord am holy, and have severed you from other people that ye should be mine. Now, God gave them strict laws governing the diet, the social life, the daily details involving every physical aspect of the lives of his people. And these laws have a greater spiritual application to his people today. And that's the reason I think we ought to study Leviticus. You see, access to God is secured for the sinner through the shed blood of Christ today. For instance, the writer to the Hebrews puts it like this, Hebrews 9:25 and 26, "...nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the age hath he appeared to put away sin." by the sacrifice of himself. And those that are redeemed by the blood of Christ must live a holy life if they are to enjoy and worship God. Again, the writer to the Hebrews concludes his epistle, Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, this book is a remarkable book, and so much so that I'm spending time here to get you interested, if I can, in a book that is about as dull to the average Christian as anything possibly could be. You don't find today very many classes or individuals or churches studying the book of Leviticus. Well, let me say this concerning it. I want to go through it briefly like this. It opens with five offerings, 
and they are clear, crystal-cut cameos of Christ. They depict his hypostatical person in depth and his death in detail. And that's in the first seven chapters. Then in chapters 8 through 10, the consecration of the priests reveal how shallow and inadequate is our thinking of Christian consecration today. Then in chapter 11, he gives them a diet. God provided for his people a diet that was sanitary and therapeutic. And by the way, it contains much spiritual food for our souls today. And then in chapter 12, he gives attention to motherhood as a further example of God's thinking concerning womanhood. And then we have in chapters 13 through 15, the very heart of the book, the prominence given to leprosy and its treatment. And here's a book on worship. Why? All this extended section on leprosy. Those who have been given gracious insights into Scripture have found here a type of sin and its defiling effect on man in his relationship to God. And the cleansing of the leper finds its fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Christ in a most unusual sacrifice. My friend, if you and I are to escape the defilement of sin in this world, we'll have to know a great deal about the death and resurrection of Christ and the application of it to our lives. And then in chapter 16, we have the great day of atonement, and that's a full-length portrait of the sacrifice of Christ. And then in chapter 17, we have the importance of the burnt altar in the tabernacle. And that highlights the essential characteristic of the cross of Christ today. Then in chapters 18 through 22, the emphasis in this book of instructions concerning seemingly minute details in the daily lives of God's people reveals how God intends the human family to be involved with Him. God wants to get involved in your business, your family life, your social life. My friend, today we've just about shut Him out of our lives, even those of us who consider ourselves fundamental. And then in chapter 23, we have the list of feasts that furnishes a prophetic program of God's agenda for all time. And then in chapters 24 to 27, which concludes the book, we have the laws governing the land of Palestine. And that gives us an interpretation of its checkered history and an insight into its future prominence. And a lot of prophecies in this book. And the nation Israel and the promised land are intertwined and interwoven from here to eternity, friends. Now you have here in these first three books of the Bible, in Genesis we see man ruined. In Exodus we see man redeemed. In Leviticus we see man worshiping God. In the book of Exodus we see that Exodus offers pardon. Leviticus offers purity. And in Exodus, we have God's approach to man. And in Leviticus, we have man's approach to God. In Exodus, Christ is Savior. In Leviticus, Christ is Sanctifier. In Exodus, man's guilt is prominent. And in Leviticus, man's defilement is prominent. In Exodus, God speaks out of the mount. In Leviticus, God speaks out of the tabernacle. 
In Exodus, man is made nigh to God. In Leviticus, man is kept nigh to God. Now, this, friends, is the introduction to this wonderful book. And we have an extensive outline of it. We begin with the five offerings and the law of them. That's in the first seven chapters. The showcase to this book are these offerings, and they're pictures of Christ. You have the first three chapters. You have what's known as the sweet savor offerings. That speaks of the person of Christ. In chapters 4 and 5, you have the non-sweet savor offerings. That speaks of the work of Christ on the cross. The first three offerings that speak of his person are the burnt offering, the meal offering, and the peace offering. And then in chapters 4 and 5, the non-sweet savor, the work of Christ, we have the sin offering, and then the trespass offering. And we're going to see that as we move now, and we'll just get our foot in the door today. We'll take that which is the first offering, the burnt offering. I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 1 of Leviticus. And the Lord called unto Moses and spoke unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, this is the oldest offering, as we shall see. For God says here now in verse 2, he says to Moses, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. Now, will you look at that for just a moment? This is the oldest offering that's known to man. It was the offering of Abel. It was the offering of Noah. It was the offering of Abraham. And the brazen altar where this offering was made. In fact, all the offerings were made there. But this brazen altar was called the burnt altar. It received its name from this sacrifice. I take it it was the most important sacrifice. And it's recorded first of the five offerings because of its prominence and priority. This offering is a picture of Christ in depth as well as in death. Man cannot probe the full meaning as this offering sets before us what God sees in Christ. And we don't see quite as much as he does. Here is a profound mystery that only the Holy Spirit can reveal. And you remember Paul in Ephesians 5, 2 says, "...and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and given himself..." For us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. This is the burnt offering. This is the person of Christ. Now, this sweet savor offering, the burnt offering, it's Christ our substitute. And we have here in these first four verses the regulations for the burnt offering. Then we'll have the ritual of it. Then the reason for the burnt offering. And then we'll turn over to the sixth chapter and see the law of the burnt sacrifice. Now, as to the regulations here, you see, as we open it, God called unto Moses out of the tabernacle, no longer speaking from the top of Mount Sinai in thunder and lightning, is when he gave the commandments. Here he calls to Moses from the tabernacle in reconciliation. Vayikra, he called. It's for those that will hear his voice. That's important to see. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.22, For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And called doesn't just mean those that hear. It means those that have responded. And I'd ask you that question, have you heard him? And have you responded to him? Now, in verse 3, and I'm reading now, If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. May I say this is free will with a vengeance. The Lord Jesus said, If any man thirst, let him come. This is an all-inclusive invitation to the human family. None are excluded except those who exclude themselves. The one condition is, the Lord Jesus said, if any man thirsts, you say, I don't thirst. Well, then maybe it wasn't for you. But if you thirst, he says, come to him. He can satisfy you. Isaiah included this in his invitation when he said, Ho, everyone that thirsteth." Come, and anyone can come to Christ who chooses to come. You have a need and a desire, come. Now, do you notice there are two types of animals that we use? Of the herd, that's cattle. Of the flock, that's sheep. Wild animals were excluded. Carnivorous animals were forbidden. Animals that lived by slaying other animals could never reveal Christ who came to give his life a ransom for many. And it had to be clean animal, and it must be domesticated, and it couldn't be taken in the hunt. Only that which was valuable and dear to the owner could be offered, for God spared not his own son. And Christ suffered on the cross, but the Father suffered in heaven. My, what a picture this is! And it's a picture of Christ obedient unto death. The burnt offering... It's the oldest offering that's known to man. It goes back to right outside the Garden of Eden. It was the offering that Abel brought to God. It's the offering that Noah brought and Abraham brought. It's the offering that's mentioned up to the time of Leviticus. It was the offering that was made by those who wanted an approach to God. Now, we have seen in this chapter so far that they were to bring an offering to the Lord. It was to be an offering of the cattle of the herd. And it was an offering that was to be made of animals that were domesticated. And the animals were those that were obedient to man. And the Lord Jesus was obedient to the Father when he came to this earth. Now, friends, this is very important. It contains great spiritual truth for us as it reveals Christ. Now, burnt sacrifice here is in the Hebrew, olah, and it means that which ascends. And I don't want to be irreverent, and I don't mean to be, but the burnt sacrifice went up in smoke. It was just wholly consumed on the altar. Nothing remained but the ashes. Now, this reveals that the burnt offering is what God sees in Christ. Paul said, as we saw last time in Ephesians 5, 2, he's a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. 
And we find that's repeated again in verse 9, verse 13, verse 17. And it is to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto God. That's verse 9. And you'd find the same thing in verse 13 and 17. Now, this is what God sees in Christ. may not be what you see in him or what I see in him. It's what God sees in Christ. And that's the thing that's all important. After all, what God is doing is saying he's satisfied with what Jesus did for your sins and my sins. And actually, the gospel is just asking man, will you be satisfied with it? God is satisfied that Jesus has paid it all for you and that he can save you to the uttermost if you'll trust him. question is, are you satisfied with that? Now, you'll notice here it says the sacrifice is to be a male. And that speaks of strength. It speaks of the fact that the Lord Jesus is mighty to save and that he's able to save to the uttermost. And the sacrifice is to be without blemish. And that means the animal is ideally perfect. This speaks of the perfections of Christ. In him was no sin, and he did no sin. He was separate from sinners. He was the beloved Son in whom the Father could say of him and only of him, I'm well pleased. He never said that of me. And I have my doubts whether he ever said that of you, but he said it of Christ. Now we are told here that he's to offer it of his own voluntary will. And may I say to you that the man had to bring this of his own will. (laughs) You don't have to come to Christ, but if you're going to be saved, friends, you will have to come. God has no other way. The Lord Jesus said, "...no man cometh to the Father." but by me. You may think that's dogmatic and narrow, and it is. But the interesting thing is it'll bring you there. And the other part of it is you don't have to come. That's where your free will comes in. You don't have to come. But if you're going to come to God, you will have to come this way because God is elected. This is the only way. In fact, he can't take your righteousness. He won't have it. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done. It's according to his mercy that he saved us. This is his way. Now, it's a voluntary will, but that's better translated, that he may be accepted before Jehovah. Now, that's in the ASV, the American Standard Version of 19.1. You see, because of the atoning death of the little animal, the sinner is received by God. The animal must be offered not in life, but in death. Did you notice that? That the little animal must be offered. He must offer a male. It must be offered. And this is absolutely imperative. The spotless life of Christ and our approval of him does not save us. We saw that when he died on the cross. In the Gospel of Mark, it says, The veil in the temple was rent in twain. Only his death can save the sinner, only his death opens the way to God. His perfect life shuts us out. Because if what God demands is the life of Christ, I can't reproduce it. 
I know that, friend, and anyone that's honest knows they can. Now, if that's the minimum standard, and he can only say of him, he's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, then I must have another basis on which to come to God. And the life of Christ, therefore, can't save me. It shuts me out from God, just as that veil shut man out from God. But the minute that you and I come through the death of Christ, for that opened the way to God, and only the death can save a sinner. Notice, everything that's mentioned here is important. It says, at the door of the tabernacle. You don't offer this anywhere else. And that's another imperative. It was to keep Israel from idolatry. And that just happened to be the thing that they lapsed in again and again until finally he sent them into Babylonian captivity. And this, by the way, has a message for us. It's to keep us from presuming that we can come to God on our own terms. You don't make the terms to come to God. God makes the terms, my friend. God says that your righteousness and mine is filthy rags, and he won't have it. He won't accept it. He won't take it. And a great many people think that the righteousness of God is just a projection or a little higher level of the righteousness of man. Nothing of the kind. It's altogether different. And the only way you can get the righteousness of God is through faith in Christ. You can't work for it. You can't buy it. And you have anything to offer for it. And your righteousness will go down the drain. God has already told us he won't accept ours at all. Friends, the way of the cross leads home. There's no other way, but the way of the cross leads home. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Now, I'm reading verse 4. He shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. Now, he's to put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. Dr. Kellogg calls this an act of designation. Well, over in Leviticus 24:14, where the witnesses are to lay their hands on the blasphemer before he's stoned to death, and then you'll remember Moses put his hands on Joshua, designating him as his successor. And then I want to quote from Kellogg, because he has a very fine book on Leviticus, and it's out of print, I think. I think you could only get it at a second-hand bookstore, but if you ever see one and they want you to mortgage your house and a lot to buy it, I would suggest you do it. It's a wonderful book. Listen to this now. I'm quoting. It's, that is, the putting on of the hands, the laying on of the hands. It symbolized a transfer accordingly to God's merciful provision of an obligation to suffer for sin from the offerer to the innocent victim. Henceforth, the victim stood in the offerer's place and was dealt with accordingly. In other words, when that man went in and put his hand on that little sacrifice before it was slain, what he's saying is just this, I designate this little animal to take my place, and I confess that I deserve to die. And friends, when you take Christ as your Savior, you're saying you're a sinner and you can't save yourself, and that you want to turn from your sins, and that you want to turn 
to the Savior, and you want to live for him. That's what it means to come to Christ, and that's what it means. Here, it shows that a little animal is dying a substitutionary death in place of the offer. And when I accept Christ, I put my hand on him. (laughs) I designate him as my Savior. And that's all the laying on of hands does anyway. We've got so much of that today that you think that there's some merit in it. There's no merit in laying on hands. As I've said before, the only thing you can transfer by laying on of hands are disease germs. That's all we're capable of transferring. It hasn't anything to do with power or that sort of thing at all. It merely designates an individual as being the one to take your place. And that's what it means to put your hands on a missionary. The church in Antioch put their hands on Paul and Barnabas, designating them as their representatives. Now, it means that he hath made him to be sin for us, and he was delivered for our offenses. And the Hebrew here means to lay the hand so as to lean heavily upon another. As the psalmist says in Psalm 88, 7, Thy wrath lieth hard upon me. Now, this part of the ceremony speaks of atonement and acceptance through the death of the victim, accepting for him to make an atonement for him. And we see this, as I've indicated, when Paul and Barnabas were sent out. We are told in Acts 13, 3, And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hand on them. They sent them away. Atonement, by the way, as I've said before, it means to cover, not to remove. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. And it was a public act. This was done publicly. He went down to the tabernacle. He went there by the side of the altar, and he slew the little animal. That's a public act. And I think a sinner needs to confess Christ publicly. And by faith we place our hand on Christ, but the public needs to know that we do it. And I think that primarily is the meaning of baptism today. It is a public confession of your faith in Christ. And it was the reason it was done in the early church, identification. Now, you have here the ritual for the burnt sacrifice. Let's notice this. Verse 5, And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord and the priests. Aaron's son shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that's by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, this is the ritual. A proper offering having been chosen, that is the right kind of animal, the sinner brings the victim to the entrance of the tabernacle where he's met by the priest. And the sinner himself slays the victim. And the wages of sin's death. And here the innocents dying for the guilty. And Christ suffered the just for the unjust. Our sins put him to death. If you want it made very personal, my sin is responsible for the death of Christ. I get a little weary today of hearing people try to argue who's responsible for the death of Christ. And they'll pick out, they say, the religious rulers, the nation Israel, the Roman nation. My friend, you can argue that all you want to, but if I hadn't been a sinner and if you hadn't been a sinner, nobody would put him to death. It's our sin that put him to death. Now, verses 6 through 9, and I'll just read this. This is so important. And he shall slay the burnt offering, cut it into pieces, 
And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire upon the altar, lay the wood in order upon the fire and the priests. And you see, they cut it in pieces so that the fire would get to every part of it and consume it. And also, everything was put in order, if you'll notice here. Everything has to be done decently in order. God is not the author of confusion. Now, Aaron's son shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that's on the fire, which is upon the altar, but his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And you see, by it being cut in pieces and everything exposed, it's the inner life of the Lord Jesus has been open for inspection for over 1,900 years. I do not suppose any person has ever been examined more than he has. And there's still a lot of disagreement concerning him. He still asks the question, "...whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am?" There's all kinds of opinions today, and some of them are blasphemy. But it's still true he's holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Now, notice here we're told that he shall put fire upon the altar. And then when you read down in this section here, verse 10, "...and if his offering be of the flocks, namely the sheep or the goats, for a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring it a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord and the priest Aaron's son shall sprinkle his blood round about upon the altar. He shall cut it in pieces with his head in fat. The priest shall lay them in order on the wood." that is, on the fire which is upon the altar. But he shall wash the inwards and the legs with water, and the priest shall bring it all and burn it upon the altar. It's a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Now, I've read all of this in order that we might see these details here, that he is the one who's been examined all these years, and he's still the one that's altogether lovely. And the fire here does not necessarily represent hell. I disagree with these who magnify that so much. It doesn't represent vengeance or wrath either. It did not at the burning bush. There, fire represented, I think, oftentimes the purifying energy and resistless power of God. The Scripture says he's a refiner and a purifier of silver. It takes fire to do that. Fire is that resistless energy of God that sometimes destroys, but sometimes cleanses and sometimes consumes. And the nature of the object determines the process. In the burnt offering, it speaks of the total commitment of Christ to God. It's absolute consecration. In our experience, this is essential also if we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. In Deuteronomy, we're told, Deuteronomy 4.24, "...for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God." My friend, you're not going to play around and get very far with God. That's the reason that there's so much that's phony today in our churches. And there's so much that's phony today in Christian service. My friend, 
I want to say it kindly, but I want to say it, you're not serving God unless you're letting him cleanse and purify your life. We've forgotten this matter of holiness today, and we need a little bit more of it in our churches. Now, in verses 14 to 16, "...and if the burnt sacrifice for his offering to the Lord be of fowls, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves, young pigeons." You know, poverty was no excuse for not bringing an offering to God. The poor could come. A bird could be substitute. Anybody could go out and get a bird and offer it. And then did you notice when our Lord was born, they brought those little turtle doves at his dedication? His parents were poor. He was born in poverty. Now, the reason for the burnt offering in verse 17, "...he shall cleave it with the wings thereof." but shall not divide it asunder, and the priest shall burn it upon the altar, upon the wood that's on the fire. It's a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet savor unto the Lord. And this is the third time we've been told it's a sweet savor to the Lord, which I think makes it adequately clear that this is the reason for the burnt offering. It's what God sees in Christ. Now you have the law of the burnt offering, and that's found over in chapter 6, verses 8 through 13. And there is something here that is so very wonderful. And I think it can be expressed in a statement that Ansel made years ago. Now, let me read this quotation here. I hope I have time to do it. And the quotation is this, "...the minister shall say to the sick man..." Now, this is for visitation. Dost thou believe that thou canst not be saved but by the death of Christ? The sick man answereth, Yes, then let it be said unto him, Go to then, and whilst thy soul abideth in thee, put all thy confidence in his death alone. Place thy trust in no other thing. Commit thyself wholly to his death. Cover thyself wholly with this alone. And if God would judge thee, say, Lord, I place the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between me and thy judgment. Otherwise, I'll not contend or enter into judgment with thee. And if he shall say unto thee that thou art a sinner, say, I place the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between me and my sins. If he shall say unto thee that thou hast deserved damnation, say, Lord, I put the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between thee and all my sins, and I offer his merits for my own, which I should have and have not. What a wonderful thing that is. This Christ, the Lamb of God, the true burnt offering, shall be accepted for thee to make an atonement for thee. This is the law of the burnt offering. My friend, between you and your sins, do you have the sacrifice of Christ? Has his blood been shed that you might live? Have you trusted him today? I say to you, that's all important. God sees Christ as the one that can alone satisfy him for your sins. Have you seen him like that? Are you still trying to bring your little puny self and your little goodness and offer that to God? God won't take that. He only accepts what Christ has done for you, and he makes over to you his righteousness. Trust him today and live.
Now today, friends, as we come to the second chapter of Leviticus, we're looking at these five offerings that all speak of Christ. The first three offerings speak of the person of Christ, who He is. They're called sweet savor offerings. The last two offerings are non-sweet savor offerings, and they speak of the work of Christ in redemption. Now, we saw last time the burnt offering, and that burnt offering speaks of the person of Christ. And today we come to the meal offering. That speaks of the person of Christ. But in the burnt offering, it was a picture of Christ actually in depth as well as death. But here the humanity of Jesus is revealed in all its perfections and in all of its loveliness. Now, if you'll note that we have here what looks like just a recipe for bread. And you know what it is? That's exactly what it is. It's really the meal offering. It's called a meat offering in our Bibles, but actually no meat was connected with it at all. And there's no shedding of blood, but this offering was different from the others, and it was generally offered with some offering in which there was the shedding of blood. Now, the meal or food offering sets forth the humanity of the Lord Jesus and all of his perfections. His deity actually is not in view here. He was perfectly human, and he was the perfect human. You see, God's goal for man is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the second man, but he's the last Adam. There'll be no more Adams, but there are going to be some more men made just like him. Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. But when you look at mankind today, friends, man as he is in the world today is the most colossal failure in God's universe. Have you ever stopped to think about that? The Scriptures are outspoken and specific at this point. They are all gone out of the way, and the original language suggests a wreck. Mankind is a wreck today. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. My friend, God can't save us by law because we can't render perfection to him. We can't keep it perfectly. And God can't save us by imperfection for the very simple reason that he demands perfection, and that's the best that we can do. And therefore, mankind today is a failure. The way of peace they have not known. The Rockefeller report that came out several years ago shows that man is a warlike creature, and he's that today. Why? Because it's in the human heart. It's rather amusing to hear about these peaceful demonstrations, and they all end up in a brawl, a Donnybrook. Man today, he's trying to perfect some very fiendish instruments of frightful destruction. That's not the goal of man. God has another purpose and another thing in view for man. And if you want to see what he's got in mind, look at Jesus. Here's the man who pleased God. There was a glory in his manhood. 
the loveliness of Jesus was truly a sweet perfume. His coming was a doxology. His stay was a blessing. His departure was a benediction. And His winsomeness has filled the world with a new hope and an ideal concerning man. Now, there are two important aspects of this offering. And the first is the ingredients that were included. And then, second, the ingredients that were specifically excluded. And we want to note that. Now, I've divided this second chapter like this. We have in the first three verses, mixed but unbaked. And then we have verses 4 to 13, mixed and baked. And then we have the first fruits of the ears of corn, sprinkled with oil and frankincense. That's verses 14 and 16. Then we go over to the sixth chapter to get the law of the meal offering, and that is chapter 6, verses 14 through 23. Now let's look at this offering. It's a very interesting offering to me. And I'm reading verse 1, Leviticus 2. And when any will offer a meal offering under the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it and put frankincense thereon. Now, will you notice, first of all, it must be an offering that's made of fine flour. And fine flour in that day was a little unusual. They didn't have these great mills as they have up here at Minneapolis. Actually, they beat it by hand. They put it down in a kind of a rock bowl and used a pestle, I think they call it, and they just trump it with that, just beat it down. Now, if a person was in a hurry, why, it would be coarse, you see, and uneven. And if it's going to be fine flour, it means it's even, and it means a great deal of time was taken with it. Now, this offering had to be made of very fine flour, which means it was well beaten. Now, I think this sets before us the Lord Jesus in his personality, and today I'm sure the expression would be that he'd be a well-integrated personality. He was a normal person. Actually, I think he's the only normal person that's ever been on this earth. Sins made all of the race lumpy, one-sided, a lack of being normal. All of us are lumpy. One part of our personality is overdeveloped at the expense of other areas. I studied abnormal psychology in college. In fact, it was my second major, and I assisted the professor of the department for my last year in college. And in this course on abnormal psychology, I went in to see him one day and said, I'd like to talk with you. And he smiled, and he said, go ahead. And he said, I think I know what you're going to say. Well, I said, I don't imagine you do, because I want to say to you that every form of abnormality that we have been studying... And when we look at the etiology of the disease, I find I have symptoms of all these forms of abnormality. And he broke out in laughter and he says, Did you know I was wondering when you would come? Because the rest of the class have all been here. They all have it. He said, And I have it too. 
all of us. I think it's Dr. Manninger over in Kansas that's made the statement that all of mankind today is a little off. We're all just a little off-center, and after all, what is normal? Well, that's the way that most of us act, and that's called normality. And that may be way out, friends. That's mankind today. Jesus was the normal person, made an even flower. Look at some of the ones in the Bible, how uneven they were. Samson, he was unable to perform great physical feats, but he was weak of both will and mind. And in fact, he's a sissy. We'll see that when we get to him. He's one of the biggest sissies in the Bible. And then Paul was a mental giant, but he appeared to be weak in body. And then Simon Peter was moved by his emotions. Even on one occasion, he declared he'd die for Jesus. Yet he denied him, revealing a definite weakness in the area of the volitional. And you remember, King Saul was self-willed and stubborn. He was unable to bow the knee in obedience to God. And this led, by the way, to his dismissal and to his death. All of these men were lumpy. <laughs> they had over- and underdeveloped personalities. And in contrast to them and all of us, Jesus was well-balanced. That was an equipoise in all areas of his personality. He could drive the money changes from the temple, but he could take little children in his arms. And when he was 12 years of age, the religious rulers marveled at his wisdom. And when he began to teach, the people were amazed. And they marveled, saying, How knoweth this man let us, having never learned? Nevertheless, the Lord Jesus never appealed to his intellect as the basis for any judgment. Have you ever noticed that? That was never the criterion for his conduct. He came to do the Father's will, and that was the motive for his actions. And Jesus could weep at the tomb of Lazarus or over the indifferent city of Jerusalem. And at the same time, he'd raise Lazarus and pronounce a severe judgment on Jerusalem, which was literally fulfilled. He was not swayed or guided by his emotions. And friends, he was never self-will, yet nothing could hinder him from going to Jerusalem to die. And at all times he could say, it's not my will, but thine be done. And he could say, I've come to do the Father's will. That was the thing. Then notice something else here. It says that he shall pour oil upon it. Now, oil... Olive oil speaks of the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice here that it's oil upon the offering. Now, if you go down to verses 4 and 5, you'll notice it's with oil. And it's mingled with oil. And then in verse 6, we're told you're to pour oil thereon. That is, on the offering. And then in verse 7, it is with oil. Now, here you have oil upon it, mingled with oil, pour oil on it, and with oil. In other words, that offering was really drenched with oil. And the oil was a very important part of the offering, and it was applied in many different ways. 
Now, the prominence of the Holy Spirit in the human life of Jesus, I think, is very noticeable. Have you ever noticed he was born of the Spirit? That's mingled with oil. He was baptized of the Spirit, oil upon it. He was led of the Spirit, pour oil thereon. He taught, performed miracles, and offered himself in the power of the Holy Spirit that's with oil. May I say that if the Lord Jesus Christ in his perfect humanity needed the Holy Spirit, what about you and what about me? I think we need him today. We can do nothing of ourselves. Now, there's something else here in this very first verse, frankincense. Now, frankincense was made of a secret formula. It was a form of incense, of course, and it was mixed with incense. We saw that back in the 30th of Exodus. But it was distinguished from it. It was made from some part of a plant or tree, perhaps the bark or the leaves, and it exuded its fragrance only when crushed or beaten or burned or put under pressure. Now, this speaks of the life of the Lord Jesus as he manifested the fragrance of his life under the fires of tension and pressures and persecution and even death. Actually, this is what the Father saw in him as the one in whom he delighted, as a fragrance about his life. And there ought to be that fragrance about our lives also. Now, in verse 2, we're told here, he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and they shall take there out his handful of the flour and the oil and all the frankincense thereof. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it upon the altar to be an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Now, the priests received a portion of the meal offering. They were to take out a percentage of each item. Now, apparently, the remainder was mixed and then burnt upon the altar. And now, verse 3, "...and the remnant of the meal offering shall be Aaron's and his sons." It's a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. Now, we are told here that the offering was to be burnt upon the altar. No blood, though, was shed in connection with it. And great emphasis, you'll notice, that's placed upon fire. And that, I think, is something that's very important to note, because, very frankly, the fire here does not speak in any way of hell at all. And I think we should keep that before us. Now you have, from verse 4 down through verse 10 here, that it was mixed and baked. And I'm not going to read all of this. Sounds like a recipe for making bread. And the emphasis upon fine flour and the oil is repeated again and again. Now, the fire is mentioned in this section over and over again. And I want to say it with great emphasis. The fire here does not symbolize hell under any circumstance. It is God's purifying energy and power which brought out the sweetness in the life of Christ. And verse 9 specifically says here, it's a sweet savor unto the Lord. It's what God saw 
in Christ and the sweetness that came out under pressure. Now, sometimes today, sweetness doesn't come out of us under pressure. I've heard some Christians say some very ugly things when they're under tension. But the more tension upon him, the sweeter he was, by the way. And the Lord Jesus made this statement, And he that sent me, he says, is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And therefore, believers have the high privilege of sharing Christ, you see, with God the Father. It's what God sees in Christ. Well, what do you see in him? Is there sweetness about him? Have you smelt the sweetness and the fragrance of his life? That's very, very important to see, by the way. And you remember in John, Jesus said unto them, this is John six fifty three, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. My flesh is meat indeed. And he said his blood was drink. As the living Father sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. If you want any sweetness in your life, and if I want any, it'll be as you and I actually partake of Christ. Oh, not literally. We're not cannibals. After all, his body's not around today. But what we do, we're doing right now, looking at him, talking about him. And as we partake of him, the sweetness of his life should come into our life. Now, this is a meal offering, a food offering, or a meal offering. And that is what we have offered unto God, by the way. Now, there's another striking feature of this section, and it's constantly repeated. Verse 11 says, No meal offering which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven. For ye shall burn no leaven, nor any honey, in any offering of the Lord made by fire. Now, these are the exclusions. This is what's kept out of the offering. Now, leaven, we've already indicated this once. We're going to come to it. Uh, again and again, leaven in Scripture is everywhere presented as a principle of evil. The Lord Jesus Christ warned his disciples of the leaven of the Pharisees. What was he talking about? He said the doctrine, the teaching of the Pharisees. And that's leaven, evil teaching today. And leaven is a principle of the evil. We'll be talking about that again and going into detail about it. Now, leaven is to be kept out. There's no evil in Christ. Which of you convinceth me of sin? Well, there's no sin in his life. And then honey was not to be put in it. And that represents natural sweetness, and it'll sour too. Leaven, you know, is a souring thing. Now, there are Christians today that have a lot of honey in their life. They assume a pious pose in public. They wear a Sunday smile. Butter will not melt in their mouths. They call everyone brother and my dear so-and-so, and their halo is polished with the latest miracle cleanser. Yet these same folks can and do engage in vicious slander and malicious gossip. They're more dangerous than a killer with a gun. 
Instead of the halo, the horns are prominent. And I know some folk, they have done everything they can to undermine my ministry. They're not but less than a half a dozen. But you know what they say to my face? They say, my, how we love you, brother. Well, I tell you, when I got folk who love me like that, who needs enemies? May I say to you, there are a lot of folk that have honey in their lives. They butter you up. The Lord Jesus, he told it like it was, friends. And that's what we need to do today. Now, we're told here in verse 13 that salt shall be put in it. That's the salt of the covenant still dealt that way over in that land today. The salt of the covenant. And may I say to you, it speaks of faithfulness. And he is faithful. Oh, it's said in Revelation after he'd finished his earthly life and had moved back into eternity, he's called faithful and true. That's the Lord Jesus. By the way, we ought to be faithful today and found faithful. And we find in the law of the first fruits, again, that every morning with a burnt sacrifice, there was to be a meal offering, that which speaks of the humanity of Christ, for he offered himself and his body for your sins and mine. Now, as we come today to the third chapter of Leviticus, we're looking, friends, here at one of the sweet savor offerings. We've already had two of them. We've had the burnt offering. We've had the meal offering. And the meal offering set forth the perfect humanity of Christ. We need to emphasize sometimes that he was perfectly human. He was one that could get tired, sit down at a well. He could weep at a grave. He could long for the little children and take them into his arms. He was a perfect human being. And he was God manifest in the flesh. Now we come to the peace offering. And this speaks of communion and the fellowship of believers with God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way you and I are going to ever come to God is through Christ. And the only way we'll ever know God. And you can see now that no single offering could possibly set forth the manifold wonders of the person of Christ and the many facets of his glory. Just as we need four Gospels in the New Testament to set forth his earthly life, so we need the five offerings of Leviticus to set forth his person and work. Now, we notice that in particular here in this peace offering, and we see it in the peace offering is in contrast to the burnt offering, with which there is also a striking similarity. Yet there is a sharp contrast, and that makes this an unusual offering. Now, the peace offering does not speak of the peace that Christ made through the blood of his cross. And I'd have you note that, because that's important. And as that has to do with sin, and we'll take that up when we get to the sin offering, and the trespass offering, the two non-sweet savor offerings. You'll notice that Paul in Colossians speaks of Christ being made our peace, not as the peace offering. Let me read this. 
and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. He made peace through the blood of his cross. But that's not the peace offering. Now, the peace offering speaks more specifically of the peace to which Paul referred in Ephesians. And that is the peace which brings all believers into communion with the Father through the Holy Spirit by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me turn and read in Ephesians, the second chapter, beginning at verse 13. Listen to this. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who hath made both one. He hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And he came and preached peace, to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, in the peace offering, the emphasis, you see, is not upon the peace that he made by the blood of the cross, but upon the peace he is because of the blood of the cross. He's the meeting place of all believers together, and of each believer with God the Father. You see, Christ is the only one, friends, who can break down the walls today that are separating individuals, that separate families, that separate races, that separate religions, that separate nations. All are made one in Christ. Then they become a habitation of God in the Spirit and have access to the Father. You see, only believers can join together in partaking of the wonders, the beauties, and the glories of Christ. And they can have, through that, communion with the Father and fellowship one with another as they share the things of Christ. John, you remember, says in his first epistle, First chapter, verse 3, "...that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ." That's very important, you see. This peace offering brings us together. And it's only as we meet around the person of Christ, that's the only thing, friends, that can draw us together. 
don't tell me that I have to fellowship with every Tom, Dick, and Harry. I don't, and I can't. But there's nothing that keeps me from fellowshipping with any person. I don't care who he is who can meet with me around the person of Christ. May I say to you, we're made one there. We're on a level there, and we can enjoy the person of Christ. Now, therefore, Christ is our peace. And we have here a sacrifice from the herd, verses 1 and 5, then a sacrifice from the flock, verses 6 and 11, then a sacrifice from the goats, verses 12 and 17. Then we have the law of the peace offering in chapter 7, and that's verse 11 through 21. Now, let's come to our text. Verse 1 I'm reading of Leviticus 3. And if his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it of the herd, whether it be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. Now, the peace offering, in one sense, is rather all comprehensive. The sinner can come to God because Christ made peace by the blood of his cross, for both are satisfied with Christ and his work of redemption. You see, after all, what is the gospel appeal to the sinner? It's just simply this. God says to the sinner, you're lost. You're alienated from me. And I'll have to consign you to the darkness of eternity. And if God does that, he'll be just and holy, and the angels in heaven will sing praises to his name. But my friend, God is satisfied with what Jesus did for you so that you can come to God. Now, the gospel message is just simply this. God's reconciled. He said, will you be reconciled? God's reconciled. He's satisfied with what Jesus did. That is the message. That's the gospel. Will you turn? God has already turned to you. He'll accept you because what Christ did. Now, will you be satisfied with what Christ did and come to God and have fellowship? That's the peace that you can know. Now, the peace offering, therefore, is different from the burnt offering in several respects. You'll notice that in the burnt offering, only a male could be offering. But here it's either male or female. But it must be without a blemish. And the offerer will never find, you see, as much in Christ as God finds in him. In the burnt offering, it's what God sees in Christ. Now, here it's the offerer who finds something in Christ. And that is something you and I should do today. And the female offering was permitted because here the capacity of the offerer to enjoy Christ is in view. And it can't be as strong as God's viewpoint, you see. Now, in verse 2, "...and he shall lay his hand upon the head of the offering, kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about." Now, there seems to be a duplication right here with the burnt offering, and it is. Now, verses 3 and 4, "...he shall offer the sacrifice of the peace offering, an offering made by fire unto the Lord." the fat that covereth the inwards and all the fat that is upon the inwards and the two kidneys and the fat that's on them, which is by the flanks and the call above the liver with the kidneys that shall he take away. Now, the contrast is here with the burnt sacrifice, you see. There all was consumed. 
all was placed on the altar. But in the peace offering, only a portion was offered. And the portion was specified. And it was the choice portion, which included the fat and the inward parts. These speak of the hidden riches, the precious qualities, and the priceless values of the character of Christ that God alone knows. You know, sometimes a public official is attacked today, and sometimes a preacher. I remember in my early ministry, I knew a great preacher. In fact, he became a friend, and I got acquainted with the family. And an attack was made upon him. Harsh things said about him. Well, the family knew him, and I got to know him. And may I say, they were all lies that were told about the man. And there are a lot of things said about Christ. And a great many people say, I don't understand this, and I don't understand that. And friends, there's a lot I don't understand, but God knows him. (laughs) Oh, he knows him, and he sees in him something we don't see. And that's the reason Paul could say that I might know him. My friend, you may have a Ph.D. degree, but you don't know. (laughs) You and I need to know him. Verse 5, And Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is upon the wood that's on the fire. It's an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Now, this is an offering that was consumed by fire. And that fire speaks of this total dedication of Christ and his human testing and suffering. And it's a sweet savor unto the Lord. This was something that satisfied God. And it also means it is only in those last three hours on the cross that he really paid for the sins of the world. Actually, in his life, we see him suffering. But his sufferings in life were not for the sins of the world. Only in that last three hours, when it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath put him to grief. He made his soul an offering for sin. What a picture we have here. Now, we have a sacrifice from the flock, and each one brings out something different. Verse 6 and 7, And if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering unto the Lord be of the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offer a lamb for his offering, then shall he offer it before the Lord. Now, the lamb sets forth in a very peculiar way the character of Christ And it's, I think, therefore, unusually appropriate as a sacrifice in the peace offering. Now, the bullock or heifer from the herd sets forth the servant side of our Lord's ministry. The bullock was a domesticated animal. A bearer of burdens plowed the fields, and it represented Christ as a servant. And we find that in the Gospel of Mark, which we just finished not long ago. But I want to add it again. Our Lord was not a bellboy to come when you push the button. He never shined anyone's shoes. He just didn't move when somebody asked him to move. He was God's servant, and he did the will of God. And that's important to see. Now, the Lamb sets forth his complete identification with man in life and death. Have you ever noticed that? At the very beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. And then later he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. You have the person and work of Christ. 
Now, we notice the very first offering, that of Abel, was a lamb. And I think God clothed Adam and Eve with lamb skin. Now, I can't prove that, so don't ask me to. But I believe that in view of the fact Abel brought a lamb. Now, we find that in Isaiah 53. He was the lamb that was offered for the sins of the world. He was our substitute. But he's a lamb in resurrection. John in Revelation 5, 6 says, I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. Now, a lamb that's been slain and is alive again is a resurrected lamb. Now, he's a lamb in his return in glory. John again in Revelation 6, 16 says, And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, who will be able to stand. The Lamb is probably the most complete representation of Christ of all the sacrifices. Now we have here in verses 8, 9, and 10, really a duplication of the ritual of the burnt offering. But we have this, that the fat is to be offered. And you'll notice that. And I'll not read all of it, but the fat was God's portion because it was considered the better part of the animal. The fat animal was the best type, and the best was offered to God. Prime meat was fat. You remember in Nehemiah 8.10, it says, Eat the fat and drink the sweet. That's God's invitation for the best. And in Isaiah 25, 6, he speaks of a feast of fat things. Now, that wasn't a blue plate, but that was a quality meal for gourmets. God's invitation was repeated. Let your soul delight in fatness. Isaiah 55, 2. And then listen to Psalm 36, 8. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. And then Luke 15:23, And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. Now today, some of us that diet, we try to get rid of the fat, you see. But you'll notice that here God says all the fat is the Lord's. God demanded the best. We see here, I think, a deep and full meaning of the peace offering. Fellowship with God rests upon the blood of Christ, but there's another aspect of his fellowship. And to make it complete and final, there must be the presentation of the life of the believer in total dedication. Now, these two aspects our Lord gave when he gave that all-inclusive invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. That's redemption. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest, peace in yourselves. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. There's the rest he gives. This is found in the blood. There is a rest we find. That's found in the fat, my beloved, when you and I Come to him and offer ourselves to him. And then it uses an expression here that may cause some of you to wonder. It says, and the whole rump. Well, 
the American Standard Version in 19.1 translates it, the fat tail entire, which simply means it was a peculiar breed of sheep of that day that had a fat tail. They are being raised in this country today, and that's what they're talking about here. Now we're told that the priest shall burn it upon the altar. It's the food of the offering made by fire unto God. Now this is a strange clause, and some have tried to associate it with pagan offerings. But the thing is made clear to us that actually what you have here is something altogether different. That instead of the offerer bringing a feast to give to God, it's God inviting man to have a feast with him. I can't go into detail today in that at all. Let me move on now to the sacrifice from the goats, verse 12. And if his offering be a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Now, this is the third and the final type of sacrifice. All three types of sacrifice are essential, you see, to portray the different aspects of Christ and the peace offering. Now, the goat represents the complete identification of Christ as adequate to take away the sin of man. He was made sin for us. That's just not a nice statement. It's an actual fact. He is the propitiation for our sins, which means that he adequately and totally paid the penalty for our sins. Someone says today, I don't want anyone to make a goat out of me. Well, my friend, Christ was willing to be made a goat for you. He took the full penalty of your sin and my sin, and that is set forth in this sacrifice here. Now, the ritual of it follows the same pattern that we've had in the burnt offering. Now, there are two statements made here in verse 16 and 17. All the fat is the Lord's, and that ye eat neither fat nor blood. Now, these two prohibitions are indeed striking, and they are amplified in the law of the peace offerings as there are certain details that do not concern us at this point, and therefore I'm going to pass right by it. We'll see about the eating of blood later on. But we are told in this section here, the reason for the prohibition of eating the fat is given here. The fat's the Lord's. Man was reminded that he was redeemed by blood. That's the basis and ground of our acceptance to God. And that brings us to the place of fellowship with God. But the fat is the Lord's. He demands the best. And if we're to enjoy it to the fullest, our fellowship with him, it's imperative that we give him our best. My friend, the reason today we have so many cheap saints is because they're cheap. <laughs> they don't offer God the best that they are and that they have. Oh, how wonderful this peace offering is. And we're told here the breast is offered, and that's given back to the priest. That speaks of the love of Christ for us, that he loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, he's saying to you and me today, my sheep, hear my voice. Do you hear him, Christian friend, in this offering here? 